0: Funding for Think is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education.
1: You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. What is the original human diet, and does it hold some secret for the health of people struggling to stay healthy in this modern era of abundant processed food? The idea behind so-called paleo diets prescribed for modern humans is that if we can limit ourselves to what our ancestors evolved to eat, we might find protection from heart disease, diabetes, even cancer. Of course, what sounds simple and logical actually leads us to a more complex and, frankly, interesting story of how we have lived in the ancient past. Journalist Ann Gibbons wrote the article, The Evolution of Diet, for the September issue of National Geographic magazine. And she's the author of the 2006 book, The First Human The Race to Discover Our Earliest Ancestors. Ann, welcome to Think.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: You open the piece in the Bolivian Amazon lowlands where many people still rely, at least in part, on hunter-gatherer traditions to feed their families, and they don't necessarily eat as much meat as we might imagine.
2: Yes, this was the surprising thing to me. I traveled two days in a dugout canoe with a graduate student who was studying the Chimani foragers. These are people, the farther you go up the river into the Amazon, the more they rely on the plants and animals in their habitat to survive. They grow a few plants, but mainly they're really interested in getting meat. But what I noticed in 10 days back in with the Chimani was the men would go out to hunt, but they'd come back empty-handed they almost never came back with meat, which I found really interesting. So if we were evolved to eat meat and a paleo diet that involves lots of meat, I began to wonder, how did that work hmm. if these men weren't coming back with much, with much meat? So what became very clear to me and surprising to all of us was that man the hunter relies a lot on woman the forager. The women in the tribes were doing a lot of gathering of nuts and plants.
1: And to the extent that they do still exist with the Chimani and some other um, sort of remote civilizations, hunter-gatherer lifestyles invest a lot more energy in acquiring food than most of us will ever do in our weekly trips to the supermarket.
2: Absolutely. They spend a good part of their day getting food. A chimpanzee, for example, has to spend most of its day—these are the apes that are our closest relatives—gathering plants that they eat. And they eat mostly fruits and other plants— And it wasn't until humans began to hunt and use stone tools that they were a little more efficient. And they didn't have to spend as much time gathering plants to feed themselves. But early on, all the people in a group, in a family group, couldn't spend all their time hunting or they'd end up with not enough food. There was a funny quote from a woman, Alison Brooks, an anthropologist who spent a lot of time hunt, uh, studying hunter-gatherers in Africa, said to me, everyone thinks that we can get meat easily, that we, we, our ancestors just stood out there with a stone tool and the animals ran right into the tool. <laughs> the reality is it's very hard to get enough meat, so someone has to find other food, which led Allison Brooks and other scientists that I interviewed to say, wait a minute, if you look at traditional diets and traditional people out there, most of their diet isn't meat, especially during the rainy season or the tough seasons. So this became the basis for a story on the paleo diet. What is the paleo diet? And what you find out when you actually look back in time using fossils or or stone tools or uh, biochemistry from ancient plants and, and plaque on teeth is that there were many kinds of humans and many paleo diets. There wasn't just one. So when you talk about the paleo diet, What do you mean? Which paleo diet? Which paleo person? And it might, in fact, matter which ones of those you are related to. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the really interesting things. So there's a whole group of people really interested in paleo diets because a lot of people believe today that our bodies evolved to eat what our ancestors ate. You know, you are what you eat, but you are also what your ancestors ate. We evolved in an environment where we didn't have Twinkies and... Uh, fast food and giant Cokes. There wasn't much sugar in our diet. Honey was a rare treat. So today many people think a lot of the diseases of modern civilization are a result of a discordance between our diet and what we actually evolved to eat. So you will see in many cities people really interested in the paleo diet and working out trying to live the active lifestyles. But when you actually look at their interpretations of the paleo diet or pick up paleo magazine, It seems to me like they're stuck in what we think of as a Neanderthal diet, something that is mainly meat, lots of chewing on bone and bloody meat, no gluten or grains, um, some plants and fruits and vegetables, but no sugar, no cereals. They're kind of the cereal killers, so to speak, (laughs) and lots and lots of meat. Uh, And so the question becomes, is that really what we evolved to eat? So and how... Do paleoanthropologists
1: and anthropologists study the last remaining hunter-gatherer cultures? Like, how do they um, get in there and talk to people without interfering with the way they live their lives, simply by their very presence?
2: Yes, okay. So the best of them spend a great deal of time with these groups, and and different anthropologists have been studying hunter-gatherers for the past century and there are records of diet, especially in the Hatsa hunter-gatherers that go back to the 1960s. And uh, the same with the Kung San click speakers in South America, what you think of as the traditional Bushmen. Uh, the same with other hunter-gatherer groups in Papua New Guinea and other places. Most of these groups are now disappearing. There are very few of these people left that truly eat a hunter-gatherer diet. Almost all of them now are supplementing their diet with farm foods, Uh, And there are only a few groups left. However, there's some good studies still going on where people spend time and not only survey the people but actually live with them and watch everything they eat and measure, do blood tests, urine tests, get a good sense of what they're eating and how much activity uh, they're participating in. So now these people are not fossils, obviously, right? These are not paleo people living in our midst. But their traditional diets can give us clues about the kinds of diets we evolved to eat. They also show us the diversity of diets. So what we are learning is that as modern humans evolved, as our ancestors came out of Africa, so all of us on the planet except for Africans, well, actually everybody on the planet are derived from Africans in the last 100,000 years or so. And a number of the ancestors of people that live in Europe and Asia came out of Africa in the last 100,000 years. As humans evolved to live in different parts of Africa with many different habitats, whether you're talking about arid landscapes or jungles, or as they evolved to live in cold climates in the northern glacial areas like Neanderthals or in the Asian steppes or in tropical islands, they had to adapt to many different plants and and completely different kinds of environments. So what we've learned is that humans pretty much eat everything they can They eat anything and everything, and the struggle has been to get enough calories until the last 100 years. So the big problem through all of human evolution was to get enough food. And people adapted to everything, all different kinds of plants and animals, so that today traditional diets reflect that diversity. And I can go into what those diets, the range of diets if you want. Sure. Why don't you talk about those? Okay so it's very interesting if you look at the range of diets you will see the jain people are almost complete vegetarians in india you will see the inuit up in the north the evenki reindeer herders anybody living in the arctic circle they had mostly meat and they are almost the only people that had mostly meat that's because they needed the energy from meat to fuel to fuel their metabolisms They have very high metabolisms so that they can keep warm, so they can thermoregulate and keep warm in the Arctic. So they eat a lot of meat, and there isn't a lot of plant matter. Most of what they get are the berries and vegetation that they actually get from the stomachs of the seals and other animals that they eat. So their diet is mostly meat. So there we have two complete extremes, vegetarian and meat eaters, but all the same species, modern humans. Then there are many things in between. People that live near the coast eat fish, they eat shellfish. People that live inland eat different kinds of plants. What is also interesting is if you look at traditional people, they go through tough times. They go through periods when food is scarce, whether it's the dry season that's tough or a super rainy season that's tough and they can't hunt much. And so what they all end up having is a starchy plant, something with a lot of carbohydrates, like the starchy pith of uh, the sago palm in Papua New Guinea, Or maybe it's tubers for the Hatsa in in, uh, Africa, in Tanzania. And those plants usually are things that the women and the children dig up or harvest. And they provide them with quite a few calories just so they can survive during tough times. So the diets tend to rely a lot on plants and nuts. And when they're lucky, they get more meat during plentiful times. And they love meat. They're obsessed with it. But it doesn't make up their diet every day, which I think is really interesting. The other part about it is their meat is very different from our meat that we get in the supermarket. Their meat is often very lean. It's raised. It eats in whatever kind of scrubby grass that it can get. The men, the hots will bring back very scrawny antelopes in the dry season. Uh... Sometimes they get ones that are fatter, but it's not exactly the same meat eating the same isotopes and and plants that we get today. So their nutrients are different. And one way we know this is people who just studied the gut bacteria of the Hatza hunter-gatherers, the ones that aren't eating any farm foods, found that the gut bacteria species were very different in the stomachs of the Hatsa hunter-gatherers than they are in modern humans today. So, if yeah, I was going to ask if, if we could sit folks
1: down, say, uh, you know, someone from an Inuit tribe who eats mostly meat and, and a Jain person from India, um, if we were to put them at the same table and I suppose take out the, the religious reasons that, that Jains eat uh, vegetable matter only, um, would they get sick from eating the same meal if it sort of mixed up the two kinds of diets?
2: I think initially they might have some trouble with it, but then they would adapt. Their gut bacteria would adapt very rapidly. And I think this is the cool thing about humans. We adapt incredibly rapidly, more than any other kind of primate or animal, to changes in our habitat, to changes in our diet. Now, that doesn't mean the fast food diet is good for us. It isn't. If you look at people like the Mayans who've lived on a very tough existence, they've scrapped out a living eating tortillas, corn tortillas lately, Uh, plants, maybe occasionally a little bit of chicken or other meat that they get, when they come and live on the Western diet, especially in the southern U.S., they move to our country, they have a very high rate of diabetes, and they end up with high blood pressure, all sorts of health problems initially, because their bodies can't adjust to that load of sugar, fat, calories. It stresses their pancreas which is important for diabetes. So in the initial generations, it's really tough for people to adapt to a high-fat, high-sugar, high-calorie Western diet. Also, lifestyles are important in this whole equation. It isn't just about the food. When people go from very active lifestyles to being much more sedentary, that's problematic for health. So if you look at the hunter-gatherers, they don't have much hypertension. They don't have cardiac disease. They don't have diabetes. As long as they're eating their traditional diets and being very active. But when they move and settle into towns like the Evenki reindeer herders in Siberia, when they come into the Russian towns with the fall of the USSR, they ended up having much higher uh, levels of heart disease and other problems. So there's a whole package of behaviors involved, not just the specifics of what they ate in the diet. It's their activity as well.
1: And how safe traditionally were hunter gatherers from problems like famine? Is that sort of a trade off? Like maybe we now get heart disease and diabetes, but we don't have to worry so much in developed countries about quite literally starving to death?
2: Well, this is what happened with agriculture. This is what's so interesting. So, about 10,000, 8,000 to 10,000 years ago, Many different cultures developed agriculture. It was invented maybe six or seven times. Uh, The most famous examples in the uh, Middle East, in what is now modern-day Iraq, in the sort of fertile crescent, about 8,000 to 10,000 years ago, humans began cultivating grains like wheat, barley, uh, and they became dependent on those crops because it meant they could settle in one area, they could grow those crops, and they could, for the first time in their lives, store grains— Before that, hunter-gatherers would have tough times where food, there'd be food scarcity, but they'd never have famine. Hunter-gatherers will go through a tough season where they lose a lot of weight. They're going through food scarcity, but then seasons change and they migrate to areas because they move across, they live nomadic lifestyles. They move to areas where they can gather berries or other foods that are sort of known as their fallback foods, and those often include nuts and berries or plants that maybe aren't their favorite foods but things they can rely on. So they'll go through scarce seasons, but they won't go through all-out all famine. Famine doesn't show up until agriculture, because with agriculture, you become dependent on a diet with less nutrients that's less broad. You're relying on grains, a porridge of grains, and that means some people control the supply of grains. So you begin to get somebody in the village, the settlement that controls the grain, and he may not give it to everyone. My so guest You can end up with famine for the first time. Is journalist.
1: Is, I have to jump in and take yes. a break here. Ann Givens is with us. Her article, The Evolution of Diet, appears in the September issue of National Geographic. We'll be back in two minutes.
0: Funding for Think is made possible by SMU continuing and professional education with courses in art, literature, History, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu/slash CAPE.
1: You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with science writer Ann Gibbons. She wrote an article called The Evolution of Diet that appears in the September issue of National Geographic. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can call 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org or send me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think. So Anne, I love thinking about these unintended consequences, right? So you have the, the invention of agriculture, the development of this technology in multiple places in the world almost simultaneously. Um, suddenly people can live together in greater numbers. They can form societies that are culturally rich. On the other hand, they have to store food. Some Sometimes they have a bad season, and you have the development of organizational hierarchies that mean not everybody gets the same amount of what is produced.
2: Perfect. You got that just right. (laughs) So our ancestors with agriculture, those who adopted agriculture, basically traded food security for food health. Hmm. So it's a very interesting notion. The hunter-gatherer diet had more diverse nutrients, and initially our transition to agriculture was terrible. We ended up with all sorts of cavities because we were living with our uh, livestock, living, sleeping with our cattle, and eventually fowl, ate, you know, b- birds and other animals, pigs. That's when we began to get the flu and uh, diseases that started with animals and moved to humans and back and forth, tuber- tuberculosis moved between us at that time. So initially, agriculture was terrible for our health, and this is what underlies the paleo diets that people like Lauren Cordain and others have been advocating. And the idea is really sound. It makes sense. Why wouldn't we avoid the foods that were rough on our health initially, such as grains? Um, And so that's what underlies these paleo diets and why people go to meat and try to mimic a hunter-gatherer diet. The problem is we aren't the same people. We're not the hunter-gatherers adapting suddenly to agriculture. For many of us, we have ancestors who survived the transition to agriculture. So I'm a Northern European. My ancestors herded cattle, drank milk, drank milk ate grain, I would assume by now after 8,000, 5,000, 6,000 years, I've adapted to that. I can eat those foods without a lot of problems. Now, an Asian who has ancestors that never ate wheat or barley would have trouble digesting those, and that may be underlying some of the celiac intolerance or celiac disease, gluten intolerance that people are seeing out there. I'm not minimizing that. Gluten intolerance is is, is a bad disease, although I do think more people think they're intolerant to gluten than actually are. Um, but celiac is terrible, and if you've got that, you can't eat gluten. The same with lactose intolerance. If you, your ancestors didn't get the sugars out of milk, which is what lactose is, you can't digest them, and you end up with a lot of diarrhea. So you're not going to eat those foods. So a lot of what we want to eat today does depend on what our immediate ancestors ate. Did they adapt? We are still evolving. Did, our, did your ancestors adapt to those foods, or did they not? So this becomes not one prescription, not one Paleolithic prescription, that you look to what hunter-gatherers eat today and you mimic it, it becomes what did your direct ancestors eat? What do your genes and your environment spell out for you? What's best for you? And I think we're going to go into an era of personalized medicine where where you can look at your genetics and you can look at what foods are going to be best for your physiology.
1: Is there any evidence that um, our evolution will take a turn so that um, we produce more children who want to eat less food and and are less susceptible to the problems we have in the modern world with obesity?
2: I don't know. I think excuse me, we have millions of years of evolution, even including our sort of pre-big-brained ancestors, where we evolved to eat as much as we could. So to survive, boy, you'd be in trouble if you weren't somebody who... Took advantage of a meal when it was there. And we crave sugars as well. Those are something that we didn't get much of, and it would give us, carbohydrates would give us instant energy. So I don't know that that will change so much, but I think that if we recognize that it, you know, I don't think a healthy diet is all that complicated, to be honest with you. I think if we recognize that moderation is the key, not too much sugar. You know, this is very much a, I will be honest with you, a Michael Pollan message or a Mediterranean diet message. Lots of fruits and vegetables, moderation in the meat that we eat. And meat isn't necessarily bad for us in small quantities, but if you want to eat a lot of meat, you're in trouble probably. I mean, I had one source say to me, meat's great if you want to live to age 45.
1: (laughs) Um, How do our genes affect our ability to absorb the sugars in starchy foods?
2: So we have uh, genes that allow us to break down the lactose, the sugars. It's a digestive metabolic gene, a protein, that, an enzyme that breaks down the sugars so we can get the energy from them. This, there's also the same thing is true for the starches in our diet. There's an amylase gene that allows us to break down sugars from starch. You know, carbohydrates, are, sugars are, our carbohydrates are sugars, and they give us a quick source of energy. Our brains, for example, are big bla- bags of glucose, Uh, they need tons of sugar to survive. And so one of the big problems and why people are interested in the paleo diet is how do we get the energy 2 million years ago to start growing a bigger brain? Before that, our ancestors were walking upright. Australopithecines, these early kinds of humans that were on the landscape, were walking upright, but their brains weren't much bigger than an ape's. So suddenly around 1.8 million years ago, our ancestors' brains began to get a lot bigger. Where did we get that extra energy? This is a big question. How did we fuel that, that very expensive organ, expensive tissue that is our brain? And one way we did that was by beginning to eat foods where we could get the calories more easily. And meat is one of those foods where you can digest it. You can, you can get the, if you're eating a, a higher quality diet with more meat in it, that was certainly part of the equation that gave us some more energy. We had new tools that we could hunt and cut up meat with. But there's more to that story as well.
1: We learned to control fire.
2: That's it, cooking. So we don't know exactly when cooking started. Richard Wrangham at Harvard thinks it started about 1.7, 1.8 million years ago. Other people think it was more about half a million years ago, 500,000 years ago, when we see the first hearths in the fossil record. What happened with cooking was a huge revolution. No matter when it happened, it was a big break for us because it meant that by cooking your food, you pre-digest it. So suddenly you have to spend a lot less time chewing your food to get the energy and the calories out of it. And that is a huge breakthrough that allows another expansion of the brain. Our brains didn't expand all at once. They began to expand 1.8 to 1.6 million years ago. And then there's another big jump about half a million years ago. So cooking was a key part of that. Having tools that allow us to prepare food, to, to pound it, to butcher it, gave us calories more readily. And then Once we started cooking, our gut biome had to change as well. Many people today who are studying gut bacteria, and, and we are full of more bacteria than we are of our own cells, so they're critical to our existence. The gut bacteria we have today are adapted to cooking. And so that's why we cannot survive on a raw food diet alone. You know, People eating raw food today are often using blenders and additives and protein that they're adding to it. But without those kinds of extras, we can't do it anymore. We've adapted to a cooked diet. 1-800-933-5372
1: One eight hundred nine three three five three seven two is our telephone number. Let's speak with Stephen in Denton. Hello, Stephen.
0: Hi. Uh, I had a question actually about the uh, micro, uh, the, the gut microbes that you just spoke about. Um, clearly, we've changed over time, and, and part of that change has been the environment of our gut. Um, how do you feel like? Do you feel like that's been a larger driving factor in the dietary changes and what we're able to eat? than our own genetics has been?
2: No, I think it's a combination. It's, I, I never sort of love these, I don't like these polarities, you know, uh, culture versus genes. I think it's always a combination. The genetics ada- allow us to adapt over time. You know, in a population, there are a lot of different genes in a population. Maybe one person, just by accident, has a gene that lets them get these sugars out of milk. If you're in a farming community, suddenly you can get energy much more rapidly, and you can have more babies that survive. That's what evolution favors, right? So that trait sweeps through a population. You can have more babies more rapidly. You're going to have bigger numbers and do better than a group that can't do that. That's one part. But then also, hand-in-hand with that comes the gut bacteria that allow you to, to adapt to that, and both have to be happening at the same time. I don't think one is bigger than the other. I do think the gut bacteria will probably be more rapid in their response Think about when you travel, how quickly your gut gets messed up if you're eating food that you're not used to or drinking water you're not used to. But then think about how long it takes you to adapt to a new place. You know, Within a year, probably shorter amount of time, you're able to adapt to living in a new habitat. So I think of the gut as the short-term response, uh, and that can change. You, the gut bacteria you get, you get from your mother when you're born. Coming, uh, This is one reason why it's probably good not to have as many C-sections because you swallow a lot of bacteria as you're coming out. Uh, and that is then influenced by what you eat as a child, where you eat, the minerals in the plants and water that you drink. Uh, it also shows up in your bones and the isotopes and in the plaque in your teeth. It's very interesting all the ways we can trace that.
1: How does um, a hunter-gatherer diet compare with an agricultural diet or a market diet um, with regard to the spacing of children, assuming that birth control is not part of the equation?
2: So this is why farming spread. As soon as people were able to store food and control their food supply they had many more babies in more rapid succession. And farmers spread throughout Europe, displacing Paleolithic people rapidly over a couple thousand years. This is what we call the Neolithic Revolution. And both genetics and fossils and stone tools, all those different bits of circumstantial evidence show this happened rapidly. So clearly farming allowed us to have more babies. Now that doesn't mean the initial farmers were healthier than hunter-gatherers. It just means... You know, you don't have to be all that healthy to have more babies. Think about animals. It's, it's, um, having more babies isn't necessarily a sign. Today, even hunter-gatherers may have quite a few babies, but they also carry a high parasite load. So they may not get heart disease, but they have other issues they have to deal with. So it was a big advantage for fertility. And that's the other thing we have to keep in mind with the paleo diet. When you look back in time for what worked for our ancestors, in terms of evolution, what works is what lets you have more children that survive. It's not about longevity. It's not about living what lets you live to a ripe old age that's healthy. It's about who has the most babies. So when you look to the paleo diet, what succeeded, you're looking to having more babies. one eight
1: hundred nine three three five three seven two 933 5372 is our telephone number. Let's go on the phone to Christina in Fort Worth. Hi, Christina.
3: Hi. Um, you had mentioned earlier about celiac disease and lactose intolerance and how that may be related to your ancestors. So if you were from Northern European descent, you probably were more likely to be able to digest wheat and gluten and rye and barley. Um, But what would you say to um, the thought that the wheat, rye and barley that is farmed now has been bred and or genetically modified to have more gluten in it so that it's, it makes softer, fluffier bread. And so we haven't adapted yet to that much gluten, that high a concentration. And so even people whose ancestors could eat gluten and grew up eating gluten now maybe can't handle the load.
2: What do you know about that, I- I absolutely know about that, and I think it's fascinating, and I really want to see research in this area, because there must be something to that. I mean, we're, it's a big mystery, isn't it? Why is there so much more gluten intolerance? Is it because we rely on much more refined grains? You know, there's, there's been a lot of discussion about how we used to have more of the kernel of the uh, wheat with its oils in it, with its rich omega fatty oils in it when we ate those grains, and now... We, with we're not doing the steel-cut grains anymore. We have much more refined grains with fewer of the oils and nutrients. And we rely on a few different crops. So monocrops are never good. This is a Michael Pollan message, and I think it's a really good message. I would love to see studies about that. Is there more tolerance to the diverse types of grains that we used to live on? Or has there always been a lot of gluten intolerance and a lot of celiac disease, and those people just didn't survive? You know, maybe only a small only the percentage of people that could tolerate that who lived in agricultural societies had more babies uh, that 's an interesting question, and today, maybe we have a little more leeway so we can adapt our diets it 's a luxury that we can adapt our diets. This is a modern pr- problem if you think about it. we can choose what we want to eat. This was not the situation for most cultures until gee, even a hundred years ago. there are no fat people in the cemeteries in London in the end of the eighteen uh, hundreds. <laughs> And the Middle Ages were the very worst time to be alive uh, when we were to the shortest and there were the least amount of food. So I would love to see studies on why there is that kind of intolerance to grains and what it's about. I'm not minimizing that at all. I think there's a real issue, and it needs to be studied. The same with sugars. I would say that of all the culprits out there, I, as a parent, am most worried about sugars. They are in our foods at huge numbers. I think there's a diabetes epidemic going on, especially for people who live in countries where their, where their physiology is small and they have smaller pancreases at birth. Your organs are, organ size is determined at birth. So going to a high-sugar Western diet is really rough for them. Uh, and I would love to see studies on that. I'm not sure we have to eliminate it, but I think cutting back the quantities of sugars and fats and salt in our food would make a lot of sense.
1: It is funny the way these things creep into processed meals. Like if you were making tomato sauce at home from scratch, you would never think of adding half a cup of sugar to the pot.
2: Exactly. And I think this is really the problem. It's not so much as we look for a healthier diet that we need to go to a paleo diet or an absolutely no sugar or no fat. You know, I don't like the idea of demonizing a single food because we've always had those ingredients in our diet. You know, the Hatsa hunter-gatherers actually eat quite a bit of honey. They rely on it for a lot of calories. Uh, during during certain times of year I think the bottom line is that it's the processed foods we get the calories way too easily we get too many of them too fast and we get huge doses in one shot when you drink a, a coke you're getting a huge rush of sugar you know and the same is also true for salt and uh, other foods like that so the real problem are the processed foods I think the solution today that I would recommend for myself and for my children and other people is to eat a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables. It's the slow food movement. Eat local foods. Eat as many plants and vegetables as you can. Be moderate in your intake of meat. Think about a Mediterranean diet. These are the people that live to healthy old ages. And be active. Be active. That's a really key part of it as well.
1: When you meet individuals who are living hunter-gatherer lifestyles and you look at them physically, not that this is—not you're a physician and not that you can tell everything by looking at someone, but do they look healthy to you as compared to someone that you would meet walking down the street in a U.S. city?
2: Okay, they're very lean, mm-hmm. and they're very active and strong, but they're often carrying a load of parasites, and you will see infectious disease at high levels when you visit people like the Chamani or the Hatsa. They don't have... The defense is they're living in these environments where they do get the parasite load, and that makes them more susceptible to infectious disease. Also, many of them are in the tropics where there's just more disease in general. So I wouldn't say my reaction is that they're healthy. They're fit. They're strong. But a lot of them don't have a long life expectancy because the high load of disease and parasites. So we are very lucky we don't have to struggle with that. On the other hand, we have gotten complacent about our diet and our physical activity levels, and that's what we can learn from these people.
1: Journalist Ann Gibbons is my guest. We're talking about her article, The Evolution of Diet, which appears in the September issue of National Geographic magazine. If you want to jump in on this conversation, we have lines open at 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org or send me a tweet at Chris Boyd think.
0: For Think is made possible by SMU continuing and professional education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu/slash CAPE. You're
1: listening to THINK on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. My guest this hour is journalist Ann Gibbons. Her article, The Evolution of Diet, appears in the September issue of National Geographic. You can join us at 1-800-933-5372 or email think at kera.org. We shouldn't forget to discuss here, and the fact that there are many people on the planet whose diets are largely supplemented by insect proteins, something that maybe we paleo uh, enthusiasts wouldn't be so quick to jump on.
2: I haven't actually written about that, but I think it's intriguing. I love it. Like I said, humans will eat anything they can. And if you can get enough insects... Uh, why not? I mean, I think I would like them better if they were covered in chocolate or something, but <laughs> it's all culture, isn't it, what we like? Food taboos are very funny, actually. They, uh, uh, Catherine Milton uh, is an anthropologist at UC Berkeley, and she studied foragers in the Amazon, and she noticed that one group's favorite food was the taboo for the next group. So it showed that one group maybe loved the tapirs, but another didn't. It was almost a cultural line of demarcation. We love this kind of food, so we are the Chamani. We hate that kind of food because we're a different group. And we develop tastes based on what our parents eat and people around us. And we're grossed out by the food that we're that is not familiar. One eight
1: hundred nine three three five three seven two is our telephone number. Let's speak with Emmanuel in Fort Worth. Hey Emmanuel
3: Hello Thanks for uh, having me on the show, yes, sure. <laughs> I guess call Um my question was for Ann. Um yeah, Gary Tobbs uh, wrote a few books, the whole um on the on the the notion that fat was actually good for your diet and that red meat uh is actually not as harmful as we were led like to believe. It was actually um so I was just curious what Anne's point of view was on that. Um if the you know, if it's actually true, does she think there's any validity to that?
2: Okay, so Gary Tobbs is a, is a friend and colleague of mine. He writes for Science Magazine, as I do, and I've talked to him about uh, the diet work. He's a great investigative reporter, and he's done phenomenal work on fat and sugar. Sugar is his most recent uh, work. And I think he's really what he's done that's an incredible benefit is he's shown that when we demonize one food, like no fat, that was the message in the 80s, then suddenly all the food industry and people thought, okay, it's okay to eat sugar, and we created other problems. So I think he shows that very well. Now he's very concerned about sugar and thinks that's the biggest thing that we need to get out of the diet. Fat in moderation is great. I don't have a problem with fat in moderation. I think he's right about that. The problem with meat that's complicated is it isn't just about the fat in meat. There have been new studies showing that ingredients like the carnitine in red meat – cause uh, cancer in animal studies. So there seems to be something that, inter- that our gut bacteria inter- interact with in meat itself, red meat itself, the biomolecules, um, that is problematic for our health if you have enough of it or too much of it. And so I would be shy of eating too much red meat. I don't think it's just a fat story. I think some. I mean, I'll give it to my family every week or two, but I am much more likely to feed them more fish if I can do that, or lots. we're trying to eat more fruits and vegetables. And there's so much data that supports that being lean and eating fruits and vegetables, less sugar, less red meat, which is associated with colon cancer and other cancers, is a better way to eat. I don't think this is so complex. Now, what what Gary Tobbs is doing now is trying to get people to fund research into how toxic sugar is. And I like the gluten story, which is also sugars, carbohydrates. Uh, I am really interested in the outcomes of that. My kids still eat carbohydrates, but I like them to eat refined, not refined, excuse me. We (laughs) avoid refined carbohydrates like sugar. Eat complex carbohydrates. They come in a package like fruit where there's lots of fiber that slows the absorption. So that is the kind of thing I think you want to do. Eat meat, but not lots of it and not too often. On the sugar thing, it's interesting how concentrated
1: different cultures like their sugar. You know, you you go to some places and they they might have dessert, but it's not nearly as sugary as the American desserts that we've grown up
2: on. Exactly. And this is, I have a little story to tell about the Chimani when I was there. We spent a lot of time following these wonderful girls, Amelia and uh, her sister, who would take us to the woods and we'd watch what they foraged. It was really interesting to see what plants they'd go for. And they as they wandered through the woods, they didn't carry thermoses or water bottles and snacks with them like we did. There wasn't any trail mix or gorp. What they do is they pick. They love these pods that had a bean inside that was sugary, and they'd suck on it. It was fantastic. So that was their idea of a sweet, something that came out of a plant. If you've ever sucked honeysuckle, you'll get the idea of that. And it was wonderful to see. They also knew how to cut plants that would give them a lot of water to drink, and they'd suck it from the leaf. So they knew which plants would give them what they needed as they wandered through the forest for hours on end. And it sort of opened my eyes to the fact that we are always carrying snacks and water bottles around with us. And uh, they, they know their local plants. You know, you asked me one other question, too, that I wanted to add about how healthy these people were. In these cultures, I've seen some very sick children, and it's always heartbreaking. There was a little boy, Alfonso, with the, with the Chimani, who'd lost an eye to an eye infection, who was crying the whole time we were there because he had a parasite in his gut. Mm. And it reminded me, again, how shielded we are from nature in our Western societies. Most of these families lose a number of their children. They just don't make it. Um, This was illustrated to me as well when I traveled in Ethiopia in the Middle Awash country. A woman handed me her baby, Tatiana, right through the window of a Land Rover I was in and asked me to take her home with me. So this, you know, we looked at the hunter-gatherers for clues about what they eat clues about the kind of foods our ancestors ate and evolved on. But this was not an easy way to live.
1: I know you were making a point there, but Please tell me, how did you respond when a woman that desperate said, please take my child? What do you do?
2: Oh, you just, you know, I had an interpreter with me, and I just said, thank you, your baby is beautiful, but I cannot take her. Um, And I just tried to empathize with my eyes. She had many children, and she lived in a thatched hut, and they were nomads in the Middle Awash in the Rift Valley of Ethiopia, and it was heartbreaking. I mean, there were girls who were 13 years old who were of marriageable age. Life is fast, and it is difficult and tough for those women and men.
1: Let's go back to the phones now. This time we have Mark on the line in Irving. Hi, Mark. Hi. Hi. Go right ahead, please.
0: Uh, thanks. Um, love the show, Chris. Thank you. And, uh, and I have a question um, about kind of changes, uh, maybe I, I don't know how to explain this other than to point into my own experience. Um, I grew up being sort of borderline intolerant of lactose, but in the last few months, I am I just have violent reactions, especially to cheese. And um, I, is it possible for your biome or your system? to change, and, and for what reason would it change, and um, can you recover?
2: <laughs> yes, okay. This I have to say right now I'm not a nutritionist or a scientist myself. I'm a writer who who has written about human evolution for about 25 years and, and have studied it. However, having saying that, I'll go ahead and tell you what I do know about this. Your gut, when you end up with an illness uh, that gives you diarrhea, your gut is more porous and some of the proteins from what you eat can cross the barrier into your intestine and, and your your immune system can react uh the blood the immune uh the t cells the the other immune uh Cells can react, uh, your, excuse me, your antibodies to the proteins from the foods, and you can develop a new food allergy. So yes, your, your gut can be more porous at certain times. This is why we don't feed babies proteins or solid foods before they're six months old, because their guts haven't matured. This can happen in animals. You can introduce a food allergy if they're sick. Uh, I'm not going to say it happens every time. I don't want people to get worried about it based on what I'm saying because I know just enough to be dangerous here. <laughs> uh, but, I, but certainly your physiology can change. It happens when your hormones change or after you give birth if you're a woman. So we do change over our lifetimes, and some foods we become more tolerant of or, or less tolerant of. And I think that's going to be something very interesting to study. The whole revolution with understanding gut bacteria is very new. This has just happened in the last decade. And we're only beginning to understand the complexity of how our guts respond to our diet and to disease in our habitats.
1: 1-800-933-5372 is our number. Let's speak now with Mac in Fort Worth. Hi, Mac. Hi, Chris. Hi, go right ahead. And I guess you've already realized that you're sitting of the best interviewers, as we consider, in North Texas and I consider the nation But that said, uh, I was uh, paleo, before paleo was cool. After taking a prehistoric cultures class, well, thank you for validating a lot of things I decided,
3: like that hunting, even with a rifle, is a lot more difficult than some of the proponents of this diet make it seem.
0: And about sugar, uh, I'm a strong believer in taking Mother Nature in Mother Nature's form. I was fascinated when I discovered decades ago that it takes
1: two feet of sugar cane to make one teaspoon of sugar, which must be Mother Nature telling you that uh, that concentration is not something your body's going to be able to handle. (laughs) With that, can we make the extension to salt, the most prevalent mineral on the planet? I was wondering if you have any idea how much salt was consumed by our prehistoric ancestors.
2: Thanks for your call. Thanks for your compliment. Yes, and we do. You do have a great interviewer. She, this is she knows her stuff. I love it. It makes my job a lot easier. Uh, having said that, salt is interesting because I think you're right. It's all about dose, isn't it? I mean, this is not a big mystery. What gets into, us into trouble is eating too much or too high a dose of sugar, salt, fat. Those are the problems, and not being active enough. So, so putting that aside, salt is interesting because the Chamani where I was were buying salt from these. Uh, merchants that would come up the river in these boats once a month or so, and they peddled a few things like cooking oil or salt. And it turned out that the salt that they relied on was very far away. So, yes, they love salt. They want it, and it is abundant. But they had to travel a long distance to get it. So that would limit their supply. That would limit the dose they would get in any one meal or how often they would get it. Now that you can buy it so readily, they would change. They would uh, trade crops for the salt, It's changing everybody's diet around the planet. So again, I think it's dose. And like everything else, it was hard to get much sugar in the past. It was hard to get much salt. It was hard to get much meat. So that limited the supply in our diet. It wasn't as hard to get tubers, vegetables or other plants or nuts.
1: Will we have the resources to provide Western-style processed diets for the entire planet as people become able to afford
2: them? This is what I understand is not going to be able to happen. Uh, Fast food is is cheap to make, and unfortunately, shipping prices have really gone down, transportation. So we're sending it out to the whole world. It's sort of the same story as cigarettes. When you travel around the world, you see people smoking everywhere. And it's interesting. Coca-Cola, there are poor villages in Mexico where people on the Yucatan Peninsula cannot afford to buy sodas. But next to them are villages where there's a little more wealth and they buy the sodas, and suddenly they have a whole host of cavities and other health problems. I wrote about one of those studies in Science where they compared two villages, one that was poor, without that kind of food in it. So I don't think we're going to be able to do that. I think the kind of Western diet we eat is way too costly for our health. Uh, I think we can't afford to do that, especially even in our own country, where we do pay for medical to try to treat it. A lot of these people can't afford to take the kind of drugs that we take when we get into trouble with our cholesterol or diabetes or high blood pressure. I also think that our planet can't sustain it. We can't grow that we can't graze that many cattle. The carbon alone is going to be a problem. So we really do need to be looking to how we help people grow the local plants and vegetables in their environments.
1: We haven't talked about this, but maybe um, it might be considered an offshoot of the paleo diet movement, and that's the raw food diet. Are there any societies left in the world that don't cook at least a portion of what they eat?
2: No. Hmm. There's not a single one, and people that try to survive on a raw food diet alone don't make it. The children are stunted in growth, and there are even cases where uh, their brain growth, it's a terrible thing to do to your growing infant to try to eat only raw food. They don't get enough of the nutrients they need or the calories to uh, have their brains develop properly or their bodies. And um, I I suppose,
1: in in some ways, cooking was the first form of processing food, um, and then we, we just continued moving on and on to what we have today.
2: Absolutely. Using tools is probably the first processing. The first stone tools show up in Africa about 2.7 million years ago in Ethiopia. So that was our first processing. By pounding the food and butchering it, we were able to digest it more easily. So that was the first step. Then cooking was probably the next step. And from there, we've gone on to the industrial revolution, (laughs) you know, first agriculture, and then the way we make everything's softer and easier to digest and eat, so that we're almost becoming like babies. Um, our teeth have changed as a result of eating a much more processed diet. If you think about it, our jaws are smaller, our teeth are smaller, our cheekbones and muscles in our faces aren't nearly as robust. If you look back in evolution, there were many kinds of humans, many kinds of human ancestors, and they have very different jaws and teeth from eating much uh, more, less refined diets.
1: Journalist Ann Gibbons wrote the article The Evolution of Diet for the September issue of National Geographic magazine. Her 2006 book The First Human, The Race to Discover Our Earliest Ancestors, is still in print. and it's been a really interesting hour. Thank you so much for making this time for us.
2: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
1: Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is assistant producer with help on the phones today from Gus Contreras. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think, and you can contact the show via email at think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.